Hour number two of Canuck Central, Dan Richo and Satyar Shaw. This hour is brought to you by Andrew Sherritt Limited, your plumbing and heating wholesaler, a proud family-owned BC company helping local business since 1892. If you missed the first hour, Bruce Boudreau joined us for an exclusive chat. You can check it out on podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Subscribe, leave a review. That way we... Well, you will never miss any of our exclusive interviews here on Canucks Central. Just a little bit more reaction out of that interview, Sat, and it's the infectious attitude of of Bruce Boudreau, always thinking of things in a glass-half-full way. We have the personnel. Hey, whatever changes they make, They are in the best interest of the Vancouver Canucks long-term. We'll be fine. You know, there's a lot of... I wonder if that infectious positivity is one of the things that really helped the Canucks get out of their early season slump this year. Yeah. And and I do think that played a part into it. Yeah. And it, it was really... It's interesting because Boudreaux's greatest strength is how he connects with people yeah that's been the greatest thing that he's been able to do is as being that player's coach the x's and o's stuff is something that he's been criticized for and when you look at the results and they are undeniable under him versus what, what happened before and we have a lot of success doing the same thing you look at it and say well i'm not too worried about it and when I try to expand over this and look at, okay, how is this going to work long-term? And I look at the things that Boud- uh, that Rutherford said and Alvin's been saying, and I'd look at the way Boudreaux approached things, at least in, in his discussions. The other day, he sounded very willing to talk about, you know, shortcomings and being better. Today, not as much so about that. It's like, hey, you know what? Things aren't as, you know, you know uh, as bad as perhaps some people make it out to be. And um, I think that we were fine being being top five. That's that. That's a question about systems yeah. and those details and analytics that maybe he doesn't quite understand yet. And I don't necessarily mean think he has to, but I just wonder, based on his answer, if there's still that bridge to gap between management and him as to what they really mean by the things they're talking about. It's um the the way it, it it's all played out. You know, Boudreaux said last week. Um, now I'm going to talk with Aiden, uh, in, in Aiden Fox, the head of the analytics department with the Vancouver Canucks, really get to learn more about these things. And, hey, he's been a pretty straight shooter with us all the time. I'm sure he is still looking forward to doing that, the Canucks. I don't think it's wrong, some of the reporting around, and we've talked about it here as well, Sat, that they plan to be an organization that really implements data into the way that they do things not in an extreme way as Jim Rutherford has talked about where like data is making Mm -hmm. all of their decisions but it will be a big part of their process when making decisions and that filters through to the coach we had Rachel Dory on with us after she was announced as joining the Canucks analytic team you know she talked about giving game reports yes and here are things that were happening and the coach will look at them and the coach will decide whether or not Mm -hmm. it's a big thing or it's not much of a thing. Yeah. 
you know, that's that's really where what this is going to come down to. Well, and what you have to also always consider, and this is where, you know, this is where I wish we always had like an hour to dig into things and really yeah. go deep with a guy, especially when they're being honest about stuff, if they're willing to go that that, that deep into it. It's like, okay, it's easy to say, hey, let's play with more structure and have more options available for passes and outlets for defensemen who have the puck in their own zone. It's like, yes, that would make your breakouts better. And in theory, your breakouts being better help you have possession more and should lead to more chances offensively, more possession offensively. And generally, that's true. I mean, the logic does follow that that usually is what happens. But are you sacrificing something by doing that sometimes? Are you sacrificing certain rush chances? Are you sacrificing stretching teams to some extent? Are you sacrificing certain things by doing that? And is that something that Babuto looks at this team and says, hey, I look at how this team has to play, and I believe if we do those things, we won't be able to do X that we need to accomplish. And this is hard for me to say because we can't predict what he wants or what, what the management exactly specifically wants, but I wonder about that. Well, <laughs> I'm going to use a soccer example. You know, you, you, you'll often hear uh, coaches come into a soccer team and, and they'll say, oh, we want to play out the back Yes, a little bit more. You know, yeah. really keep possession. Be expansive. Yeah, really play at the back. And then, you know, you get to the game, you get to the match, and, oh, our defenders, they don't pass the ball very well. Yeah. So this is this is a problem. Our goalie's distribution isn't strong enough. Uh, we, we Maybe maybe this was a bad idea. Maybe I can't do this. And, and that's the thing I wonder about with this Canucks team, Sat. You know, do they have, outside of Quinn Hughes, do they have defensemen that can really do those types of things consistently create from the back end build up from the back end when they've tried to like string a bunch of passes together eh, you know pucks go astray and interceptions happen um you know they just they they don't hit their man and teams will break it up pretty quickly you saw that really with the New York Rangers they have trouble with that in these playoffs against the Pittsburgh Penguins a lot of times it does come down to your personnel and how well you are able to execute these types of things. Yeah, and when he looks at it and says, listen, we've had success with the quick-ups, which was as soon as you get it, get it up ice. Yeah. However that is. If well, it's even a flip, under Green, when did this team score the most? It was when they were scoring off the rush. That's and, what this team is almost built to do. And that's what they did early on, essentially. Try to push it up ice as quickly as possible and then try to create off yeah. the rush. And that's essentially what they did, but they also had an emphasis on getting the puck deeper and playing down low more and try to generate the cycle yes. and go low to high for that shot attempt instead of going high to low and, you know... That was always a bit of an issue for this yeah. team. So that was a big difference in their systems play, and I think that made a big difference. But I do wonder, just with their transition, is are you how much value are you leaving on the table, in his view, by going from the quick ups to a more control type of breakout with more options and more structure and responsibility for, and assignment for each player when they're on the ice? And And maybe in his vision is, he looks at the team and says, they're not going to succeed playing that way. We're going to leave too much value on the ice. It's better for us to just go and try to win 50-50 puck battles in neutral zone. It's, um, you know, the, the controlled exits, controlled entries, they are a big part of the game. The one team that leads the league in dump and chase is the Carolina Hurricanes. And they're about as good a possession team as there is yeah. for basically every year under Rod Brindamore. 
but they play to their strengths, which is what you should be doing as a team. What are they? What 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 is the one trait they have better than any team almost? Speed, speed, speed. So if you got great speed, you're probably going to win win some of those battles. Most of those battles, I would say, and yeah. that's what they're doing. They have the best retrievals and they have the most volume, right? So it goes kind of hand in hand. But with their speed, they're able to get the puck that way. It's it's hard to break through the neutral zone with possession. It really is. I mean, it's easy to say. It's very hard to accomplish. So what's your best way of doing that? When you have such a great advantage at with your team speed and fours that are able to go in on the forecheck and win those puck battles, then it just makes sense to play that way. And I wonder how much of that is, that is just the guy um, like Brendan Moore looks at it and says, sure, we can try to do this, but is that playing into the strength of our team? How much better are we doing just by being simple? Because no, I mean, we're going to beat defenders and the opposition to those pucks, what, 80% of the time? Yeah. There's a lot, you know, when when we say analytics, it's not um, it's not a narrow, you know, kind of term. <laughs> there's there's a lot, especially with all the new data that's come into the league and how far some of the um, proprietary data goes, does make a big difference. Yeah, and 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 I think this is where there could be a slight disconnect because what the uh, Boudreaux mentioned. And that was, hey, I'm not worried. I get worried about the structure too much. I'm not going to change maybe some. The things he mentioned changing wasn't to do with the breakouts, really. Yeah. It was more to do with face-offs and some other you know, fundamental parts of the game that he wants to have more time to do. Because if he looks at it and says, hey, it's just about getting the puck up the ice. And they're saying, well, yes, but the data shows when you're controlled, you're just so much better. You're going to be so much more successful in doing so. And I just wonder if he just looks at that and says, I don't get it. Like, what do you mean? Like, we're yeah. still having success this way, whereas they want more control in how they get out of their own zone. Well, and even, you know, I can tell when we're uh, getting our teeth kicked in because we're hemmed in our own end the whole night. I don't need a stat sheet to tell me that. Uh, if I look at the shot clock and we're getting uh, outshot 40 to 20, uh, I know we probably didn't have the best night. Those types of things do matter. Context matters in that, too. And Jim Rutherford, in his interview yesterday with the Daily Faceoff, did mention how, and when he was talking about goalies, and of course he being a former goalie, talked about how you know, players have, and teams have adjusted and they're getting more east-west passes. Mm-hmm. This is part of the analytical data. Like, how do you implement things into your systems, into your game plan that get you to more east-west passes in the offensive zone that have a higher probability of ending up with a goal, right? Those are those are how you use analytics into the overall game plan and then hoping to create those patterns on the ice consistently so that they lead to those goals. Yeah, and if you play a style that, that allows you yeah. to do that, then you can have a bit more success, right? And when I look at this team when they're at their best, that's how they play. I mean, we had discussions with Brock Besser late in the season um, after the games when they won where they're playing some of their best hockey and they're stringing along a lot of those short pass, small passes and creating some speed off doing that and, and getting through neutral zone with a lot more control. And they talked about how, hey, we're, we're really effective when we're able to pull that off. Like, there is a capability of doing so. And sometimes, you know, we make too much of, hey, systems. It comes down to the players also seeing what's there. And as far as breaking out of your own zone goes, it, a lot of it does fall in your forwards. I know that's what Omar mentions on Twitter. It's easy to just point at the defenseman, but they have to have available outlets to pass the puck to. Yeah. And the Canucks don't have, often have that enough. I think it's one of the things that um, 
really makes Tanner Pearson stand out on this team is he's he tends to be in the right spots so often. Uh, Cheech says this to us often, you know, uh, oh, when the puck comes around to him at the blue line in the defensive zone, he gets the puck out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, which you can't say about all these other guys on the team so much. So, yeah, like that's part of having some younger players. That was really mm-hmm. part of the growing pains uh, with pods early in the season and certainly with Hoaglander for much of the season. Yeah, and the detail aspect of things is really more important come the playoffs where those mistakes really stand. I mean, when you look at Niels Hoaglander, when you look at the chances he created, he created plenty of chances. Yeah. And he was still a good player. He just was snake bit, and then he struggled with decision-making and playing within a system. But once you get into the postseason, if you're not going to miss assignments and make mistakes, you're not going to play. How many guys do we see in the in the postseason, year in and year out, that had good regular season playing middle six roles, and they just get healthy scratch come the playoffs? Like Gurianov struggled a bit this year, but he's a guy that got healthy scratch and played and didn't play some games because yeah. his details aren't great, despite the fact he can score and he has a yeah offensive ability. A guy like Radulov, even at his best, has been benched in the postseason because his details aren't great. When he's not scoring, he's going to cost you by making mistakes. Yeah, And those are things you just can't have in the postseason, but you build those habits throughout the regular season. But it is, I was, it did perk my interest a bit when just hearing Boudreaux kind of push back on some of those notions, like yeah. the structure stuff and uh, having to change and relying on the goaltending. He didn't seem too worried about it at all. Uh, definitely a different message from the coach than the GM. Is that necessarily a bad thing, though? Uh, you know, the, the the front office does have to take a view from a 1,000 feet, and the coach is looking to win one game at a time. No, I mean, I have no issue with the overall vision of the roster, and, and those things aren't always going to be aligned. That's fine. The biggest, the biggest thing is, are you trying to accomplish the same things? Right about how you're trying to play and if you're on the same page about it. You know, it's one thing to say you you hire the coach and he decides what to do. But if you have a vision about how you want the team to play, then it's going to matter how the coach decides to go about that. And that's going to be the biggest thing. Stan Richo and Satyar Shah, Mike in the Valley listening live, coming in on the Dunbar Lumber text line. My prediction is that the Canucks make the playoffs next year, lose in the first round because Demko doesn't steal games and Bruce is fired. Because the overall analytics show they really weren't that good as an analytical team next year. Hmm. That's uh, from Mike in the Valley. An interesting thought there, Mike. Uh, we'll we'll see how next year plays out. Obviously, a lot of questions with the roster as well and where it goes from here. Uh, he was not interested in wondering who or what yes. may or may not be on this roster. Said specifically, uh, I love JT Miller. I hope JT Miller is here forever. So uh, you know, you know, Bruce is on team. Let's work out a contract for JT Miller. Yeah, he was very much like he wants JT, but at the same time, mentioned his his job is to coach whoever he has. Yeah, and he doesn't have much control about what's going to happen there. Yeah, and I mean, Boudreaux came back without that being resolved. So it told you he's not coming back. He he just he, it wasn't just dependent on JT Miller. He wants JT Miller here. But yep. if he if he was that worried about them needing JT Miller, maybe that would have affected his decision to come back. One thing I thought a lot about today, um, you mentioned yesterday Philip Forsberg and the idea of like signing him to a contract, trading Miller and signing um, Philip Forsberg to a contract. 
a contract that you would similarly have given to JT Miller. Mm-hmm. There's like there's oddly like a few centers you could m- make that kind of a move with. Like okay, you're allotting let's say seven and a half million bucks for for JT Miller, and like or you don't want to go over eight on a contract for JT Miller. You got to figure out how you get to fifty million bucks, but you don't want to go over eight million on the average annual value. Let's say, well, if you are trying to build assets through your organization but also remain competitive. Do you not trade JT Miller and then maybe sign a free agent at the number you would have been comfortable signing JT Miller at? It depends on the player. Yeah. Of course. Um, Let's say Kadri. Kadri's kind of a, he's a little bit older than Miller, but it's, it's that one. I mean, I'd rather sign Miller at 30 than signing Kadri at 33. Like Philip Forsberg's the guy to me. Yeah. If, If you're going to make that move, that's the guy because he's going to be 28 in August. Mm-hmm. You know, five years younger than Kadri, two years younger than JT Miller, and there isn't a big drop off between those two players, right? Whereas with Kadri, I mean, he's going to be good for a couple of years, yeah. But I mean, that may fall off. I mean, if you're worried about JT Miller when he's 35, Kadri's going to be 35 in two <laughs> years. Or uh, you know, if you really want to get bold, you trade JT Miller and. Maybe go after a guy like Evan Rodriguez and hope he gives you seventy <laughs> percent. Yeah, I mean, yes, or sixty percent of what Miller gave you. What are you signing Evan Rodriguez to though? Like, it's it's not going to be probably a cheap like three, deal. three, four million. Like, what's what? How much more is it going to be than that? I don't know if it's going to be. I mean, he had a he pretty had, good year. I know he had a really good year, but I, I mean, think, you know, that's how baseball teams think. Of it. Well, like, I agree. We'll, I was, we'll I was move say. on from this player and then. Get the assets for him, and then we can we can fill seventy percent of what he gave us. I was gonna say, I mean, as far as Boudreaux is concerned, all you need to do is provide him with a team that you can argue is better. Yes, it's not about who we who we bring back; it's about making the team better. How right. do you improve the team? That's what it all comes down to. And ultimately, even if there's, let's just say for a second that there isn't full alignment between Boudreaux and and management on how the team should play, that's fine. Yeah, as long as there's trust and management doing the right thing for the team long term, and certainly that seems to be the case. Because if there wasn't that trust, he wouldn't be back. So as much as we're sitting here talking about system differences and this and that, and, and it doesn't sound like they're on the same page as far as how to play and reliance on goaltending, those aren't things that are necessarily deal breakers with how a relationship between management and coach has to work. And that's evident by the fact he's coming back for one more year. It's Dan Richo and Satyar Shah. Canuck Central, uh, keep your thoughts coming in on the Dunbar Lumber text line. Bet on hockey like never before with Play Now Sports, your local BC sports book. Uh, we're going to preview the Battle of Alberta coming up with Daniel Nugent Bowman. So let's take a look at the New York Rangers and the Carolina Hurricanes. Carolina obviously are heavy favorites in this series. They are, as it stands right now, 675 to win the Stanley Cup, which I don't think is that bad of a bet, considering how good the Carolina Hurricanes have been all year long. And this matchup against the New York Rangers is one I really like them in, Sat. Mm-hmm. You know, the Rangers don't control play all that well. They rely on Igor Shesterkin and got by the Pittsburgh Penguins by the skin of their teeth. 
Penguins, uh, the Hurricanes don't have the holes that the Penguins do. And, you know, you couldn't predict Crosby missing most of Game 5 where things really turned around and Game 6. So I just, I really like Carolina in this series, and I think New York is a much better matchup for them than the Pittsburgh Penguins would have been. Yeah, I I, 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 I agree. But one of the things I wouldn't worry about with Carolina Yep. Are they going to generate enough quality scoring chances? I think against New York they will. And Shesterkin, you feel like, is not going to be able to hold up? Well, like, I just don't get Gerard Gallant and his deployment at times. Yeah. Uh, you know, I thought Tyler Mott was really good coming back into the series uh, off of injury. Made some really quality defensive plays for them. But at times it's like, you know, why aren't you playing Alexis Lafreniere more? Yeah. Why, why are you leaning on lesser players when you have talented guys? And Lafreniere, I thought he had and flashed some really great moments in that series against Pittsburgh, but there was just a reluctance to play him more than 14, 15 minutes a night. And I think that's the trust more than anything. And the, the main reason why Lafreniere has been benched at times, hasn't played uh, a ton of times is because of the details that come up yet again. And I know that that gets annoying to hear, but I wonder if that's simply the case or Gerard Gallant's just being kind of, um, let, let's say hard headed, which he has a, <laughs> he, he has a reputation of being at times. Maybe that's the case. But if you feel like this guy's going to make mistakes or not be in the right position, especially in critical t- times, a guy's not going to have a ton of trust in him. And I, th- I wonder if that's kind of the part, but my biggest question with Carolina in general, and they're a good hockey team, but, is Sebastian Ajo right? And is their high-end talent going to be good enough to beat Shesterkin consistently? Because right. I don't like the way Rangers play. I have some doubts about the Canes. Uh, Svechnikov has got to be on his game. Um, Trocek. Now, they're big shooters. Got to shoot the lights out. That's uh, that's how you're going to beat Igor Shesterkin. And I don't think like, Trocek's a nice player, but he's not. Not a star. He's not a star. I mean, he has good years and stuff here and there, but he's not a star. He's not a real needle mover. Your two guys are Ajo and Svechnikov. Yeah. Those are your guys. And they and they have to be on big time on. Um, Rangers, they are. If if you think you know the Canucks can go on a deep run, just relying on the goaltender, you you want to see the Rangers have success here. I mean, I think yes to some degree, but I'm not even worried about that because if the Rangers have success, it's because they got goals and they got some goaltending, but they're not a team that's going to win the Stanley Cup. And, I mean, when we're sitting here and talking about, you know, the Canucks and all that sort of stuff, like, what are we talking about? A team that could, you know, win a round or two, or if they get great goaltending, could be dangerous for a round or two? That's not a that's not a standard to aspire to. Now, the Rangers aren't a finished product. The Rangers are a team that's still transitioning to becoming a contending hockey team. They're going to be even better next year. They'll be even better in two years. They're ahead of the Canucks right now. But they're not the finished product. And when you look at how many young players they still have and how many options they have with their roster, I would say in two years, that team's going to play a lot better overall than how they're playing right now. And this team that can win a round or two is going to become a team that could contend for a Stanley Cup. But they have to get better for that to happen still. Uh, It's the Battle of Alberta that's going to be the biggest talking point here in the second round. Daniel Nugent Bowman covering the Edmonton Oilers at the Athletic. He'll be joining us. Next, as we go into what the Battle of Alberta may look like. It's Dan Richo, Satyar Shah. We are Canuck Central.
This hour is brought to you by Andrew Sherritt Limited, your plumbing and heating wholesaler, a proud family-owned BC company helping local business since 1892. You can always listen on demand to Canuck Central via your favorite podcatcher. You can live stream it via the Sportsnet app, the TuneIn Radio app, also the iHeartRadio app to get Canucks Central. Uh, Marcus and Gibson's listening live, 650-650 on the Dunbar Lumber text line. Rangers in seven. They wake up in front of Igor, and at seven and a half, there's some juice there. So Marcus likes the Rangers to keep the run going. The Battle of Alberta is where a lot of our focus will be. We'll have game one tomorrow night on Sportsnet 650. And thanks to our friends at Sportsnet 960 in Calgary. But um, this series is fascinating, Sat. I wonder if Calgary's offense gets going back to the way that it was during the regular season once they get away from the hyper-defensive Dallas Stars. And I wonder how they try to stop Connor McDavid, who's just been on another level here in this place. Good luck with that. Hope, pray. (laughs) Say your prayers, drink your milk. Eat your vitamins. I don't know why Hulk Hogan has got into this conversation. But. A Sherwood sandwich? Not that we condone those things. <laughs> Let's bring in our next guest. Uh, covering the Edmonton Oilers at The Athletic, it's Daniel Nugent-Bowman. Thanks for this, Daniel. How's it going? Not bad. You lost me on the refer- uh, wrestling references, though, so let's, let's, let's stick to hockey. All right, all right. Well, well no, no more Hulk Hogan references uh, on the show. Um, how are you feeling about covering a battle of Alberta? That should be, it should be interesting. You know, as, as somebody... Uh, you know, I grew up in Ontario, and this is only my fourth year uh, here. I've, I've lived in Western Canada before that uh, as well, but uh, I know how big this rivalry is, and it's something even in Eastern Canada I think people are, are interested in, in seeing. So uh, last one obviously being 31 years ago, and, and of course the, the ones before that in the 80s were almost de facto Stanley Cup finals. So uh, we're not obviously quite at that, that level yet with these two teams, but two pretty good teams, uh, Calgary especially, uh, throughout the course of the regular season, uh, a very good team. And the Oilers, uh, when you have number 97 doing what he did in, in the first round, uh, it should make for, for a very great series. And, you know, the, the rivalry in the 80s was, was one where, um, you know, the, the ba- battle levels were high and the intensity was, was maybe even higher. And, and uh, for the way hockey is played now, I would say this might be one of the best uh, rivalries still going. Uh, if you look back a couple of years ago, you had goalie fights and, you know, uh, you know, Matthew could check against um, Zach Cassian and, and, you know, even guys like Ryan Nugent Hopkins and, and Sean Monahan squaring yeah. off. So I, I think uh, I think the uh, these two teams really don't like each other. And, and uh, it will be one heck of a series that people are going to want to watch. Well, no doubt. And, and, you know, Dan and I were kind of joking about, you know, what's the best way to slow down or stop Connor McDavid? And the reality is, if he plays the way he did, especially in games in six and seven, there really is no way of stopping him. So the question kind of becomes, and maybe it is too reductive taking it to this uh, kind of basic level, but that you just don't let anybody else but McDavid beat you, that you kind of concede that he'll score, but you keep everybody else off the score sheet, essentially. Is that doable? Maybe. Uh, Connor McDavid was so good, though, against the, the, the Kings uh, that it didn't really matter. He, you know, I wouldn't say he won the, those two games on his own, but he was clearly the best player on the ice in, in game six and seven for either team. Uh, I would say probably, you know, given the circumstances, that the two best back-to-back games I've ever seen him 
him play in the National Hockey League. Uh, he was tremendous. He set points on five of the last six Oilers goals. Um, and what's going to make McDavid even more important uh, in this series is, is Leon Dreisaitl's health. Uh, playing with with a right ankle injury, uh, suffered at the, in the first period of Game Six, and you know he's really gutted it out. He plays 22 minutes still uh, in Game Seven, um, but clearly not the not the same player. He did not center a line. He played with McDavid and then played on the wing, um, and we expect that to be the case uh, given his mobility issues and uh, you know for the start of the series anyway. Um, so that really kind of hampers the Oilers' depth. Uh, McDavid's the type of guy who, you know, he can, he was playing so well uh, and, and, and scoring so well, even with, uh, you know, Jesse Pugliarvi on his line, who's gone through a miserable uh, offensive drought here, despite, you know, some of the other things he does on the ice. Uh, McDavid is the type of guy who can, who can drive a line on his own and, and put up points on his own. So he doesn't really need Dreisaitl's help, but they really need Dreisaitl to be able to um, to have his own line and spread that out, especially with the depth that Calgary has up front. And if he can't do that, which we suspect is the case, that really is going to hamper the Oilers, um, you know, as you start uh, going down the lineup. We expect that they'll probably start the series going 11 forwards and seven defensemen. That'll help give McDavid a little bit more ice time. But you certainly don't want him playing 27 minutes a, a night uh, like he did in Game 7. Eventually, he's going to have, he's going to probably wear down. Um, so you're right, Um uh, McDavid is so good, though, uh, that he might be able to just do it, do it on his own. But the Oilers are going to need some some help, uh, give him some help eventually at some point in the series. Well, that was you know kind of the 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 one storyline that I was focused on was was Drysaddle there in the first round, and at five on five he was getting beat pretty good. I think the numbers were uh, L.A. outscoring mm-hmm. the Kings, uh, the Oilers six to one with Drysaddle on the ice without McDavid during that series and, and it kind of flipped once Woodcroft put uh, Drysaddle with McDavid at five on five. And, and I just don't think he's, he's able to do that right now, you know, and, and you know, maybe it's kind of one of the things is McDavid is also kind of just hiding Drysaddle a little bit while, while they're on the ice together. But what do you think about Drysaddle and his health going into this series? Yeah, he's clearly not 100%. You could you could tell watching game, the rest of game 6 and certainly in game 7. Um he had some he you know straight ahead speed I, I thought was 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 all right uh, for him. Uh you know, it's when he had to make tight turns and, and things and, and shield off guys which he's so good at doing. Uh he just did it and um you know, they they kept him off the ice since since the game uh Saturday uh and, and you know Maybe that's going to help a little bit, but you know you're right. He he struggled at five on five in the series. He had a few good moments, uh, but you know games one and four, I believe they're kind of blending together. But I think the two losses that they had in the first half of the series, he was not very good. And you know Zach Hyman uh, has to take some of that as well. He was the guy who was uh, his wingmate for uh, for that stretch too. Um, but, uh, you know, Drysaddle is certainly the type of guy who, who can turn it around when he's healthy. Um, and we, we just, you know, injury updates are hard to come by at this time of year, but it's pretty clear that he's not, uh, you know, 100%. So anything, the, the good thing for the Oilers is, you know, putting him on Connor McDavid's wing, you know what they can do together. Drysaddle at whatever percentage he actually is, is still better than a lot of, a lot of other options on this team and a lot of other options across the league. So you're, you're kind of hoping that um, even though he's not at his best, you're still going to get something decent from him, which he did get in Game Six and Seven. Uh, you, you know, he really got it out and had a couple points in those games. So um, you're, you want him in the lineup rather than not, regardless of his health. 
Yeah, I mean, and when I look at that team in general, just how they play defensively, however, like when you have Tanev in on the back end, I mean, Calgary really has does a really, really good job of um, defending in their own zone. But when I look at how that team defends when they don't have them in their own zone, especially like even the Dallas Stars, they're a team that didn't generate a ton. But they still had a, a, num- a decent number of chances against that Calgary team. So I kind of wonder from the Oilers' perspective, if they, if they feel like once they get set up in the offensive zone, that that Calgary defense has some trouble defending. Yeah, especially, uh, you know, Chris Tanev did miss Game 7 for the Flames' best mm-hmm. defender on that team. Uh, I, I believe he skated today. Uh, but, you know, if you miss Game 7, that's got to be a significant enough injury for a guy like that. Uh, to miss a game of that magnitude. So, um, you know, he's their best defenseman, clearly not at his, be- at his best in terms of his health. Um, you know, if the Oilers can, you know, they don't obviously don't have, um, you know, last change in the first two games of the series, but if they can somehow, you know, sneak out McDavid against that bottom pair that uh, although has played really well uh, for them or, or overachieved in a lot of people's eyes in terms of uh, Zadorov and, and Grabranson, but certainly not the most mobile pair, um, yeah, you know, if, if McDavid uh, can maybe kind of capitalize on, on those two guys or or maybe a Chris Tanev if he gets in and is not at his best, um, you know, the Oilers can, can maybe make some hay in the offensive zone for Calgary because the Oilers are a very good uh, offensive team, generally speaking, and, and obviously McDavid is a, he's a huge part of that. Uh, the other factor, of course, is, is their power play, which is, which, which is lethal and uh, dry sidle, regardless of his health, uh, should still be able to, to make an impact on that special team. So, uh, for whatever reason, my Twitter timeline ends up getting filled up with Jesse Pugliarvi takes uh, <laughs> off of Oilers Twitter, and uh, there's he's either a the Consmite Trophy winner or he's the VCHLer. Uh, <laughs> We're not sure. There is a lot of discourse about how much uh, he gets to play and how much he should play. Uh, his rate of success on the ice. Uh, how do you feel about the deployment of of Jesse Pugliarvi, and should he be a bigger factor going into this Battle of Alberta? It's a it's a hard question to answer because generally speaking, I I, I would say I'm a, a pretty you know a pretty big Pulleyarvi fan, especially you know in terms of some of the other, my other colleagues on this market. But he has had a lot of uh, you know obviously I mentioned the scoring drought. Uh, I think it's something like four goals in the last 41 games. He was tremendous in the first half in terms of the points uh, and goals that he put up. Uh, second half it was much more of a struggle. He had a, a lower body injury that that allowed or that forced him to miss 12 games. Uh, in the second half of the year as well, so that that factors in. But clearly, he's a player struggling with his confidence right now. You can just tell watching him. Um, you know, his sec- his shifts are you know twenty five thirty seconds. He's uh, going out uh, making uh, you know a couple of safe plays, trying to get the puck in the offensive zone, uh, and, and not you know wanting to you know wants to get off before he, he you know anything potentially can go wrong. Um, it's too bad because you know he's the type of player that to me. Um, you know, his analytics are great. His value, there's some value there. Um, certainly a guy that, that is very smart, very defensively conscious uh, and can play in the offensive zone when he's at his confident, when he is confident. Uh, but right now it's, you know, the puck can't, seemingly can't get off the stick fast enough. He can't get off the ice fast enough. Um, and, you know, the, the coaching staff, uh, although they haven't said so publicly, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's clear that they've lost a bit of confidence in him as well. You know, he's been playing, you know, five to seven minutes a game, um, not playing on the power play. He's been off the top unit for quite a long time uh, where normally he would be uh, sharing that, that net front role with Zach Hyman. 
um, that that job now has has been shifted uh, as a secondary option to Kyler Yamamoto. So um, not getting a special teams time, uh, not getting any time really in the top six in a little while. And, it, you know, it's not a it's not a, too much, I would say, of an indictment on this player. It's just a guy uh, going through confidence issues and, and it turned the, the coaching staff as well. And you've got to play guys that you, you feel like you can trust at this time of year. Well, and, you know, as far as goaltending goes for the Edmonton Oilers, Mike Smith got the shutout in Game 7 against the LA Kings, has had some ups and downs. But ultimately, how should Oilers fans feel about Mike Smith and their net minding? As good as you're going to feel. You know, I feel uh, he's had a really tough year in terms of he's been frustrated. Uh, it's been... Uh, you know, a case where uh, he's been injured a good part of the, almost the entire first half of the year, and then he struggled for a few games coming back from that injury. But if you look at the recency, uh, you know, his recent play, uh, April, you know, second star of the month for that month in the league, uh, two shutouts, 951 save percentage that month. You know, talked to his goaltending coach here, Dustin Schwartz with the Oilers, felt he really turned the corner during a three-game stretch in California at the beginning of that month. Um you know, he, he, he revolutionized his game. I did a story on him before the playoffs um, with, uh, with uh, you know, out in, in Kamloops. I'm blanking on the gentleman's name, unfortunately. But, um, you know, and, and at 38 at that time, now he's obviously 40. He, you know, that's a huge step that he had to take. And it's really helped his career in terms of his, you know, his technique and his mechanics. Um, you know, out of great year last year, uh, seventh investment trophy voting. Uh, and, and you're starting to see some of those signs that you have in the last little while. Obviously, game one, you have that puck handling gas. There are a couple of maybe not great goals that he led in the series, but two shutouts and a 938 save percentage. Um, it's tough to argue with those numbers. And if he can battle um, Jacob Markstrom in the Calgary net mm-hmm. to anything close to a draw, you have to like your chances if you're the Edmonton Oilers just with their offense. So we know Edmonton isn't uh, exactly going to play the uh, park the bus style of the of the Dallas Stars, and the Calgary Flames feed off of of rush chances, and they obviously have maybe a few more lethal finisher finishers than than say the L.A. Kings. Uh, mm-hmm. How much is that keeping up Jay Woodcroft at night uh, going into this series? Yeah, they you know that was a point of emphasis I know for the Los Angeles Kings uh, trying to counter counterattack. Uh, the Oilers and really catch them, you know, going north and, and, then, and then going south and vice versa. And uh, it's something the Oilers are going to really need to be cognizant of are those neutral zone turnovers and, uh, you know, watching where they, you know, how they place pucks and, and, and those types of things. So, um, yeah, you're right. There's, you're certainly right. The, you know, the Kings, not only were they not, you know, a particularly high scoring team, they were missing one of their, their top six forwards in Victor Arvidsson uh for the entirety of that series and, and calgary certainly has a bit more firepower so we saw what happens when edmonton plays loose against the flames uh, the last week of the year was a 9-5 game where they the flames scored all nine of their goals you know at, at even strength and, and that was an absolute debacle from from edmonton's uh side of things defensively but uh you know under jay woodcroft and uh, uh coach assistant coach Dave Manson, they've been a much better defensive team, and I know that they're uh, they're really hunkering down on that and, and, and focusing on that heading into the series. How much can Zach Cassian get Matthew Kachuk off his game? Mm, <laughs> depends how much he plays. Uh, you know, we're talking about Jesse Puliarvi. I mean, Zach Cassian is is forward number. Uh, if they're going with eleven forwards, he's basically forward number ten or eleven. Um, now, if, if Zach Cassian, or if rather Matthew Kachuk wants to run around and, and create some 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 problems, maybe you move uh, Zach Cassian up in the lineup. You you know, we've seen 
Woodcroft or, you know, previous coaches uh, try that uh, approach before uh, maybe you move him up for a shift or two there and, uh, you know, play him um, alongside McDavid for a little while. The one other uh, factor though, is uh, the Oilers have Evander Kane. And so maybe Evander Kane becomes more of that uh, Zach Cassian type because Evander Kane can certainly uh, play a bit more and, and has, you know, I'm talking about his skill and he does play more, than Zach Cassian would. So uh, maybe Evander Kane shifts to that, that Zach Cassian role in the series. Hey, Daniel, we uh, really appreciate your time today. Uh, enjoy the series. We'll catch up soon. Absolutely. Anytime. Thank you for having me. Uh, there is Daniel Nugent Bowman uh, covering the Edmonton Oilers at The Athletic. Fascinating series, that. Like, of course, Battle of Alberta. I'm I'm too young to really remember those series like deeply, right? It's been since 1991. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Um, but you know, even a couple of years ago, when you could really feel the hatred between the two teams after the Kachuk Cassian incident, and through the years, the battles they've had, the close calls they've had for getting into the playoffs, it's always been a thing, right? We know it. It's one of the things that the Canucks crave is to have a more geographical rival with the Seattle. Kraken. Um, I just, I don't see how Edmonton wins this series outside of Connor McDavid superhuman or Kachuk and Goudreau continue to underachieve or actually Goudreau didn't really underachieve in that first round. Given how many goals were scored, I think he did just fine. But if that Calgary first line underachieves, and I think it's unlikely because of the way Edmonton defends, I just, I, I don't, I see more paths towards Calgary winning than I see for the Edmonton Oilers, especially with the dry sidle injury. Yes. Um, I, I see the same thing as far as different pathways, but what is the best, most um, fruitful path? McDavid. That's the way I view it. Now, we've seen McDavid lose playoff series before. And Calgary's team game is better than Edmonton's team game overall. But who's stopping McDavid? Mm. Nobody right now. now they're, really, they're not. And, and I do believe that, that Calgary's going to give up some stuff. That their speed and the way they play can be an issue, but not necessarily against Edmonton's top line and against some of the lines that Edmonton rolls out. And that advantage may not be as significant against a team like Edmonton that has that advantage with Connor McDavid. It comes down to Leon Dreisaitl, too. Yeah. Because as good as McDavid can be, can he do it alone? Well, he did in game six and seven. Drysaddle, uh, they had to hide Drysaddle yes. in game six and seven. Um, uh, you know, does does Calgary have a Philip Deneau that can really shut down uh, one of those lines? Michael Backlund can be pretty good defensively, but he's he's not what he used to be, in in my opinion, on that front. So <sighs> depth is going to be so key. And I think because of the dry sidle injury, Ryan Nugent Hopkins becomes a huge X factor in the series. He's obviously going to have to paper over some of what dry sidle is leaving behind given the high ankle sprain. And that's why I think the Pugliarvi question mark is super interesting because they're not playing him a ton, despite the fact that the numbers look great around Pugliarvi. And they're playing dry, uh, Josh Archibald much more when they get crushed with Josh Archibald on the ice. Meanwhile, when Pugliarvi's out there, the results are there for you, for everybody to see. Mm-hmm. McDavid, 
had career numbers this year playing with Jesse Pugliarvi a lot of the time. Yes, Pugliarvi's numbers don't jump off the page at you, but overall, the Oilers had, as a team, a lot more success when Pugliarvi played with McDavid. Same thing is happening with Ryan Nugent Hopkins. It's one of those things that the disconnect between the eye test and the analytic test, Pugliarvi may do some things that frustrate coaches. At the same time, the overall suggests the Oilers are a better team when Jesse Pugliarvi plays a bigger role. Oh. That, that's a huge question mark that Jay Woodcroft will have to answer in this series. Well, and Jay Woodcroft, I do question a lot of his decision-making early on, but he's a guy that kind of figured it out. Yeah. Towards the end of the series. Yeah, he's a guy that kind of figured it out as time went on. And kind of a similar thing that um, happened uh, for Brunette behind the bench for the Florida Panthers. Mm-hmm. He kind of had some issues early. And was getting out-coached, and they kind of figured it out. And, and I think Woodcroft would be a lot better off as time goes on. Um, it is Dan Richo and Satyar Shah. This is Canucks Central. 